most merciful God. We thank you for your word. And we remember that your word will not return void to you. We remember that your word accomplishes your work. But it cannot do that, Father, without the Spirit also working within us to help us understand, to give us wisdom to apply, to convict us where we need to be convicted. And so we pray, Father, that it would be your will to do your work in us today, to sanctify us, to grow us in the likeness of Christ, to teach us to turn away from sin and to turn more fully to your only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in order that he may be glorified in our lives. So use this time, Father, to accomplish your purposes your work in us for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, strangely enough, there's not a specific verse or passage per se for me to uh, ask you to turn to today. Um, the first words of First John are a great introduction for, uh, for this book uh, because they remind us who's writing this. They remind us what he saw, um, what he heard, what he felt. Uh, and, and why he has credibility uh, when it comes to sharing what he saw and what he wrote for us. But really, we need to start this book with a question. And that question is, who do you say Jesus is? I, I'm not interested so much in, in who your neighbor says Jesus is, but who do you say Jesus is? Because if you understand what the Bible teaches about salvation how it teaches that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. You'll understand exactly how critically important it is that we answer this question in line with what Scripture tells us. Who do you say Jesus is? Let's just start with this. Nobody can deny that Jesus was a real, an actual, historical figure. And very few people in our day and age actually try to deny that he was a real person. But the Bible doesn't just present Jesus as just another teacher or just another historic figure. Jesus himself never presented himself as just another teacher, just another prophet, or just another historical figure either. Rather, he claimed some really extraordinary things. He claimed to be the Son of God. And, and he obviously understood how important this question was. Uh, you'll remember at one point in his ministry, he's walking down the road with his disciples, and he turns to them, and he says, who do the people say you are? And they've got all kinds of answers, right? And he says, but wait a minute, who do you say I am? But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves here. Who do you say Jesus is? C.S. Lewis 
broke it down this way. You really have three possible answers to that question. Given what the Bible says about Jesus, given what Jesus says about himself, you you really only have three options, what you might call a trilemma. Uh, Three options uh, um, in terms of answering who Jesus is. You have to believe that he was either a lunatic, a liar, or that he was Lord. Based on what the Bible tells us and based on what Jesus tells us about Jesus, you have to believe that he is either a lunatic, a liar, or that he's Lord. Now, of course, you could go into a a psychiatric hospital. If you probably go go into any psychiatric hospital, you won't be too hard-pressed to find somebody who will claim to be God, right? Crazy people do that, and, and we understand that. In fact, even in Jesus' own, own time, uh, people understood that crazy people do that. Uh, there were people who thought that Jesus was a lunatic. There was even a time when his own family thought that he was crazy, that he was out of his mind. In the third chapter of Mark, we're told of a time when uh, Jesus, uh, after he was done uh, preaching and, and healing people, uh, we read this in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He, Jesus, came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people, that's talking about his family, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. In other words, his own family thought that he had gone nuts. Based on the claims that he was making and the crowds that he was drawing, he's, he's out of his mind. He's out of his senses. And in our day and age, there's no shortage of skeptics and truth-suppressing atheists out there who would acknowledge that Jesus claimed to be God, but they might chalk it up to lunacy, to the fact that he was a lunatic, that he was crazy. The second option, you, you might think that he's a liar. Uh, there are sane men, uh, people of, of, a, of a sound mind, who have claimed to be God, right? And we, we all know that, but we also know that, uh, that they know that they're not God. Uh, maybe they're making the claim to influence people, or, or to manipulate people, or to gain uh, power, or to gain money, or to gain some type of pleasure over gullible people. Is that the kind of relationship that Jesus had with the disciples? Was he just lying about who he was so that he could have power and influence over them? I mean, he, did he claim to be God but knew that that was false? Did he claim to be God knowing that he wasn't God? I mean, if that's the case, not only would he be a liar, uh, but he would be among the most evil liars of all time because his followers left everything that they had behind in order to follow him and many m- countless Uh, followers that he had in the first century followed him unto their own deaths, unto martyrdom. But he would also have been pretty foolish if he was a liar, right? Because uh, ultimately his claim to be God uh, led to his trial before Pontius Pilate, and ultimately it led to his crucifixion. And for many opponents of the Christian faith, this is what they'd say about Jesus. Yeah, he claimed to be God, but he was lying, So you can believe that he's a lunatic, you can believe that he's a liar, or third, you can believe that he's Lord. Not just a Lord, but that he is the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah. When Jesus asked that question to the disciples back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, who do you say I am? Simon Peter famously answered, 
in verse 16 with astounding confidence for, for somebody who always had his foot in his mouth. Um, the, the, the right answer, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response in verse 17 was to say, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Friends, there is nothing in the world, nothing in the entire universe that is more important to you than how you answer this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Because if Christ is who he claimed to be, if he is fully God and fully man, if he is the Christ, if he is the Lord, really you've only got one response. One response that's, that's proper and adequate. And that is to trust in him for your salvation. To forsake Anything and everything that you have ever trusted in for salvation or believed in for salvation and believe and follow Christ. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him in faithful obedience. If he is Lord, that is the only valid response, the only proper response. So today we're going to begin... Our next book study, after spending 27 months in Genesis, uh, we'll be starting our next book study in the Gospel according to John. Some people may call it the Gospel of John, uh, and, and it's, it's fine to refer it to, that way, uh, to, to refer to it that way, but I do prefer to say the Gospel according to John because, uh, I don't know, to me, when you say the Gospel of John, it sounds like John is the good news. Gospel means good news. Uh, but no, th- this is the good news according to John. Uh, he's giving his eyewitness testimony as inspired, uh, as breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And this book, the book of John, is one of the greatest, richest treasures known to man. Not only because it tells us about Jesus, but because it's a book that is both, on, on one hand, it is profoundly simple, and on the other hand, it is profoundly deep. So the waters are, are shallow enough for a, a young child to, to splash around in, but also deep enough for even the most seasoned theologians to sink in. Now, now we call it the, the gospel according to John or the gospel of John or, or, or just John, but strangely enough, the author of this book uh, never identifies himself by name, unlike many other books of the Bible. Uh, This book never tells us who the author is by name. Instead, the the book repeatedly refers to to the author, or the author repeatedly refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved, and one of the many reasons, there are a lot of reasons that, that I love that he calls himself that. But one of the many reasons that I love that he refers to himself that way is that it reveals immediately for us what the author sees as the foundation of his identity. Think about the world today. Think about the way that people identify themselves, what they consider to be the foundation of their identity. Maybe some people will say, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an American. Or some people would say, I'm, I'm uh, you know, ethnically Caucasian, or I'm a female, or I'm a male, or, or whatever. These, and these things are the basis of their identity. But the author of this book makes a profound statement in seeing 
that the basis, the foundation of his identity is that Jesus loved him. And for the Christian, the same is true for us. And by the way, that's not to say that Jesus didn't love the other disciples. He certainly, certainly did. Uh, But it was a personal love that each one of them felt and experienced. It was a personal love that, that John experienced, a love that was aimed and intended specifically for him. So why do we attribute the book to John then? If the the author never uh, identifies himself, why do we call it the gospel according to John or the gospel of John or just the book of John? Well, we do know, uh, based on what we read in the book, we do know that it was written by somebody who was there. It is unquestionably eyewitness testimony, and that's what it claims about itself. Uh, That's what John uh, claims about it. It was written by the one who leaned into Jesus' chest as they were gathered for the Last Supper. We know from the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know that Jesus kind of had an inner circle. There were three specific disciples with whom Jesus was particularly close, and that was Peter, James, and John, right? And yet, out of those three who were the closest to him, only John is never mentioned by name in this book. The early church attributed this book to John, not only for, for this reason, uh, the fact that he, he never identifies himself, uh, but, but we know that John was one of his closest disciples, uh, but also because Irenaeus, the famous um, second century apologist, the, the writer and church leader of the second century, had personally met and personally known the apostle John. And he attests, Irenaeus attests in his writings to John's authorship of this book. Uh, and, and this view is supported historically and evidentially by every other early church or, or ancient document that deals with who wrote this book. In the second century, everybody believed that John wrote this book. So the question then might be, well, when did John write the book? That's also a very important question in our day and age. Because if it was written far, far, far after the ministry of Christ, it could not have been an eyewitness, right? I mean, if you watch the History Channel, they'll probably tell you the, the, the loosest answer uh, and, and unquestionably the wrongest answer uh, that they possibly can. They'll say it was several generations after Christ. And it, it is a difficult question to answer with, uh, with exact precision, to give an exact date to, just because it was so long ago. But while it is difficult to specify an exact date that this book was written, here's what we can be sure of. We can be sure of this much. We can be sure that because it was written by John, it was written in the first century. Probably toward the end of the first century. Now, somebody, some people would say, well, I don't know about the end of the first century. After all, um, it, it, it seems like it must have been written before 70 AD, uh, because in 70 AD, you'll remember that the, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and yet there's no mention in this book of the temple in Jerusalem, although, uh, of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, although there is a heavy emphasis on uh, the events that took place in Jesus' ministry around the temple. And some people would also say, you know, it, it, 
seems to have been written around 90 AD, uh, possibly a little bit later than that, uh, before the end of the first century, uh, when the, dis- the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, at that point, it, you know, it, was a, it was a distant, distant memory, um, possibly. Uh, but it's probably because the gospel, according to John, is so different in theme and in style uh, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke that this book has really been uh, attacked quite heavily uh, over the course of the past 200 years. There was a 19th century academic scholar by the name of Rudolf Bultmann uh, who came up with this idea that Scripture all scripture, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament too, that it was all just really an account of man's existence prior to things like science, prior to the age of reason and knowledge. And so because, according to Rudolf Bultmann, because unlike the biblical authors, we've been so enlightened by science and reason in our day and age, uh, we need to, to change how we read the Bible. Uh, he believed that Scripture needed to be naturalized or demythologized, if you will, uh, which means seeing all the supernatural elements in the Bible and saying, well, okay, this is just a guy who was too stupid to realize that you know, there's a naturalistic explanation for this. So he reinterpreted everything through this naturalistic paradigm. Uh, he was one of the people that, that uh, helped, anyway, uh, really launch an attack on, on this book, uh, and the problem is, of course, it assumes its conclusion in the premises. If, if, you, if you approach the Bible with a naturalistic presupposition, you're going to see it very unsupernaturally, right? So, but, but you're arguing, he was arguing for a naturalistic worldview by assuming the validity of a purely naturalistic worldview. And if you try to read the book of John that way, I mean, you'll end up really confused. What do you do with it? Because Jesus does miracles in this book. He does things that science in our day and age has no naturalistic explanation for, like healing blind people. We can't do that in our day and age. What makes anybody think that Jesus was able to in his day and age? But the assault, the academic assault on this book has led many to believe that it has to have been written somewhere between 150 to 200 years after Jesus' death. But here's what we know. As evidence has been examined, very, very, very few still doubt its first century authorship. And very, very few doubt that it was written by an eyewitness. In fact, there's no reason to doubt that everything that we read in this book, there's no reason to doubt that any of it uh, is untrustworthy. There's no reason to doubt anything that the disciple whom Jesus loved has recorded for us. One commentator notes this. He says, quote, The historical trustworthiness of John's gospel is also supported by John's accurate knowledge of the geography of Palestine. This has been vindicated increasingly by archaeological discoveries. End quote. So, once upon a time, scholars noted that John uh, refers to a lot of places that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't refer to, and that they refer to places that John never refers to. 
But the places that John refers to, uh, which for years, for a long time, were, were questionable, they seemed very questionable, they have all been verified by archaeological excavations. For example, John, uh, in John chapter 5, verse 2, John refers to a place called the Pool of Bethesda, which John says had five porches or five porticos. And for a long time, this raised a lot of questions because nobody had ever seen or heard of uh, a five-sided um, uh, pool before. And, and nobody had ever found one that was shaped like a, apparently shaped like a pentagon. But what they've found uh, more recently, I suppose, uh, is that between 50 and 75 feet below modern-day Jerusalem, there was uh, a large rectangular pool that had been buried. And if you're thinking, well, that can't be it because a rectangle has only four sides, that's true. But what they found is that there's also a bridge that went across the middle of it, thus making the fifth porch or the fifth portico. So John was right, and archaeology has vindicated John's testimony, as it has repeatedly when it comes to uh, the geography of ancient Jerusalem. Uh, so the, the testimony that John gives us is corroborated by the evidence. But the important thing to note is not so much the exact date that it was written, although that is important, but simply the fact that it was unquestionably written in the first century by somebody who was there, by somebody who was an eyewitness. The earliest reference to John's writings, including this book, come from a second, uh, second century Christian man named Polycarp of Smyrna, who not only made note of John's writings uh, in the first quarter uh, century of the second century, uh, somewhere around 120 AD, but who also had been a disciple of John. So he attributed it to John, and he had been John's disciple. Uh, also significant is the fact that the earliest piece of ancient uh, manuscript from the gospel, according to John, is a papyrus fragment from the early 2nd century that was found in Egypt. Now, given that it's a copy, and it took a long time to make copies back then because everything had to be done by hand, uh, but given that it's a copy and that in the ancient world, not only did it take a long time to make the copy, but, but it took a long time for copies to actually circulate as far as Egypt. Uh, but given all those things, it unquestionably pushes the first century authorship uh, as the answer. It has to have been written in the first century, and today... Very, very few people, no serious scholar doubts that John's gospel testimony was an eyewitness testimony from somebody who had been there. Now, people would certainly save themselves a lot of time, a lot of wasted effort if they would just take God's word at face value, wouldn't they? But what does sinful man do? Sinful man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Sinful man knows that God's word is true. Their conscience testifies to what God's word says. And in their unrighteousness, they suppress it. Finally, whenever you start a study, <coughs> one of the things that you want to know ahead of time is why was it written? Why did John write this book? To answer that question, we also need to understand whom the book was written for. 
And in John's case, it seems clear that it was written for a Greek audience. The Gospel according to Matthew was very clearly written for uh, the Jews uh, who were the first converts, right? Um, they, were, they were considering the, the claims of Christianity, uh, and that makes the most sense since the earliest converts were, were Jews. The, the, the first uh, gospel testimony would be written for Jews. Uh, and, and one of the more prominent themes of the gospel according to Matthew was Christ's fulfillment of prophecy. So it actually all makes perfect sense. Um, then there's the gospel according to Luke, uh, and that was written, Luke tells us who it was written for. It was written to a man named, uh, a Roman man named Theophilus, uh, most excellent Theophilus, that is. And, and it makes perfect sense if you understand that he was writing to a man who had a lot of wealth, a lot of power, uh, because the book, one of the themes of the gospel according to Luke is the cost of following Christ and the generosity that should be exhibited in the life of the Christ follower. But as the gospel continued to spread well into the second half of the first century, there was a need for the gospel uh, to, to be given to the Greeks, for a gospel account to be uh, written for the Greeks, something that would be more accessible, more understandable for somebody who had no understanding of the history of the Jews. That, you know, they didn't know anything about Old Testament prophecy. Uh, they, they didn't know much about Jewish life. And so these are details that may have muddied the waters for them. And these are things that John doesn't really spend any significant time on. A few weeks ago, I, was, um, I, I, was, I had a very engaging and, and lively discussion with somebody who claimed to be an atheist. I say claimed to be an atheist because the Bible says there are no atheists. Uh, but he, he, was, he was criticizing my faith because he said, as a Christian, you believe in this religion that claims that the earth is only 6,000 years old and which science has proven to be mythological. Um, and, and I told him, well, those are things that uh, you're asking me to present evidence to you, and I'm not interested in, uh, in discussing things related to evidence with you. And, and I think that threw him off, because he was expecting me to say, well, here's the proof. Here's the scientific proof. And while there is all this scientific proof that you can throw at somebody, here's what I said. I said, I, I'm not interested in, uh, in discussing evidence because the reason you claim to be an atheist is not because there's not enough evidence out there. You claim to be an atheist because you have suppressed the truth about God in your own unrighteousness, and your own conscience testifies to the fact that God exists. I asked him, have you ever done something that you knew was wrong? He said, yes. I said, well, how did you know that it was wrong? He said, well, maybe I was trained that way. And, and you know, we, we went on and on about how, you know, you'll find the same um, values the same moral code across cultures, even in the ancient world, when they had apparently you know, been separated for, for quite some time. And I asked him, how do you explain that? And he couldn't. And so I said, so your, your conscience testifies to the fact that there is a moral code that's transcendent, something outside of yourself, something outside of everybody that is written on our hearts. So his own conscience testified to the fact that God exists. And I said, and because of, uh, it's because of your rebellion against your creator that you claim to be an atheist. And it doesn't matter, because this is an, uh, or an issue of rebellion, it doesn't matter how good of an argument I make for God's existence for you. It doesn't matter what kind of evidence I, I show you. 
Because no amount of evidence is going to convince you. You still won't believe because it's not an issue of evidence. It's an issue of rebellion. And he replied, how could you possibly know that about me? You don't know me well enough to know that. And I said, you're right, I, I, I don't know you uh, all that well. I don't claim to know your heart, though. But I know what the Bible tells me. And so when you ask how I know this, you're, you're really saying, uh, you, know, are you, are, you know, believe me instead of the Bible. And so I said, who am I going to believe? Am I going to believe what God says about you? Or am I going to believe what you say about you? And, and actually, the, the conversation ended on a very friendly note. And I said this. I said, listen, if you want proof that God exists, here's what I want you to do. Ask God to show you. Ask God to prove to you that he exists. And here's what I'd encourage you to do. Read the gospel according to John. And I, I said, before you, before you read it, ask God to reveal the truth about himself to you. And I know that if you honestly and sincerely pray that prayer, God will prove to you that he exists and that Christ is Lord. And so he promised to do that. And he also said that he'd be listening in to some of our sermons online. So we'll see how that goes. But why do I tell you this story? I tell you this story because, well, it has to do with the purpose of the book, being written for people who don't have uh, a pre-understanding, who don't have a whole lot of knowledge about the rest of the Bible. I mean, isn't it true that uh, the people who are curious about the faith, who are curious about Christianity, or maybe they, they just come, they've just come to Christianity, uh, we often tell them to read the gospel according to John. And, and that's, that's why, uh, you know, uh, the most reasonable answer for figuring out whom the book was written for seems to be late first century Greeks who didn't have an understanding of all this other stuff. But they need to be able to answer this question. Who do you say Jesus is? And so with that in mind, the purpose of this book is spelled out very clearly for us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he says this. He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that's exactly why this is the book that we ask people to read when they're curious about Christianity or when they first come to the faith. Because the most important question in the world is, who do you say Jesus is? And the gospel according to John is aimed at answering that specific question so that, believing, you may have life in his name. One of the things that strikes a lot of people about the gospel according to John is just that it is so, so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, from the testimonies that they recorded for us. Uh, from the very beginning, uh, from the outset of this book, John takes a completely different route. Uh, in, in discussing the origins of Christ, Matthew and, and Luke tell us about uh, the virgin birth uh, and, and, and Christ's birth with, uh, with Mary. But John goes back before that. In fact, he goes back to the earliest point in the whole Bible, to the very beginning, giving us not an historical account of Christ's birth or, or, or his origins, but a theological statement, a theological treatise, uh, which 
reveals the eternal origins of Christ, the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things exist. But given how similar Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, those are called the synoptic gospels because they're, they're very similar to one another, uh, it seems that John felt that it was necessary to give an account uh, for the sake of the Greeks, but without duplicating a whole lot of stuff that the authors of the Synoptic Gospels had written. So there's no account in John's book of, uh, of Christ's birth, but there are miracles in John's testimony that you don't find in any of the other Gospel accounts. Uh, for example, the turning of water to wine in Cana uh, at the wedding, for example. Um, there are people that we meet in John's book that we don't, that we're never introduced to in uh, in the other gospel accounts. People like Nicodemus, or uh, what about the Samaritan woman at the well? Uh, what about the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead? That's only found in the gospel according to John. John's testimony also includes some of the most memorable words of Jesus. John three sixteen. Maybe you're familiar with the verse, but you've never heard the words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Famous words, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Or in John, we also find the I am statements, the things that Jesus says about himself. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Or my favorite, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or I am the true vine. Not only does John include all these things that we don't find in the other gospel accounts, but he also leaves things out that the synoptic gospels included, like the parables. Um, we just finished a study of the parables that we did uh, right alongside our study of Genesis. Uh, you don't find any, t- any parables in John's testimony. He, d- he didn't tell any parables. But when all is said and done, John's testimony, what we find in the gospel according to John, is 93% original. 93% unique, meaning we don't find it, uh, 93% of it in the other testimonies of Christ's life. So John is very intentional about what he shares. After all, he does uh, end the book by noting that all the paper in the world couldn't possibly record all the things that uh, that Jesus did, that John saw Jesus do. But it's because of John's Uh, testimony of the gospel that we can be confident that Jesus's earthly ministry actually lasted for three years. Uh, Reading uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the impression that a lot of people get is that uh, Jesus's earthly ministry was really only one year. Uh, So when we read of Jesus overturning the temple uh, tables, or the the tables in the temple, cleansing the temple, we understand um, we read that twice because it happened more than once. When John tells us about it, it's at the beginning of his ministry. It's, it's right after uh, when Jesus turns the water to wine in Cana, which was the beginning of his ministry. When Matthew and, and Luke tell us about it, uh, and, and Mark, when they tell us about it, it's at the end of his ministry. So it's not because John messed up. Rather, it's because this was, this was years later, and Jesus did it more than, uh, more than once. But friends, John's testimony was written to tell us about a specific person. A person whom he had known, a person whom he had seen, had smelled, had heard, had touched, had loved. A person who was fully God 
and fully man. A person who has existed throughout eternity and has come in order to redeem a people for himself in accordance with the will of the Father. Remember his opening words in 1 John, a letter that he wrote most likely of the church in Ephesus. He said this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, why are we, why why this book? Why, Why did I choose this book for us to study? For the same reason that John wrote the book, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. In the, in the Gospel according to John, we have a book that we can trust. It is reliable eyewitness testimony. It's a book that we can rely on. And it's my conviction that if we take at face value the extraordinary claims that John makes about Jesus and that Jesus makes about himself in John's testimony, God will use this book to grow us in our faith, to grow us in our personal holiness, to grow us in our devotion to Christ. I mean, if we see and understand what John tells us in this book, we will know who Jesus is. We will see who Jesus is. And I believe, I firmly believe that this book is just such a treasure because it presents Jesus with theological clarity and depth and fullness that is just unparalleled in the rest of Scripture, including Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's not to say that they don't clearly reveal Jesus as the Son of God. Of course they do. But the Christology that we find, the, stu- the Christology is uh, the study of Christ, uh, knowing his attributes, knowing who he is, what he's done. The, the Christology that we find in John's testimony is unparalleled in any other book of the Bible. In the 4th century, there was um, a preacher, a, a teacher who was becoming more and more popular, very uh, gr- growing audiences everywhere he went, and his name was Arius, um, very popular teacher, as he publicly proclaimed that Jesus was not God. Rather, Jesus was just another created messenger of the true, the one true Most High God, who alone was Almighty, transcendent, the Creator, and and the first cause of all things. And ultimately, the church had to do something about what Arius was teaching, because it was not in line with what they were teaching. They were teaching that Christ was God. Arius was teaching that Christ was not God. Ultimately, the church's response to Arius was to denounce him as a heretic. To this day, uh, that's what Arianism is. It's the denial of, uh, of who Christ is. It's a denial that Christ is fully God. So the church uh, proclaimed him, denounced him as a heretic, uh, which he clearly was. And they wrote what came to be known as the Nicene Creed, which was really a defense of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. 
And so when you look at the Nicene Creed, you'll find that there are really three statements within the creed. It opens up with a statement about God the Father, followed by a statement about God the Son, uh, ending with a statement about God the Holy Spirit. But when it comes to the church's view of Christ, part of the statement, uh, part of the Nicene Creed says this of Christ. It says that he is, quote, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And when you look at what they say here, when you look at the language that they use and the precision that they, that they use, you can see that a lot of that is very obviously drawn from the gospel according to John. In John's testimony, we learn that Jesus was sent by God the Father, that's John 3.16, that he shared in the glory of the Father before the foundations of the world, John 17.5, that he was subordinate to the will of the Father, John 6.38, but also repeatedly we see that he is one with or equal to the Father. We see it in the very first words, the, the, the opening verses of the book, and we see it at the end when Philip says, show us the Father, and, and Jesus responds by saying, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So let's go back to that question. Who do you say Jesus is? Was he a lunatic? Well, none of his disciples thought so. And in fact, one of his brothers eventually came to believe. James came to believe. He changed his mind. He stopped believing that Jesus had lost his mind and saw that Jesus had been telling the truth all along. So he wasn't a lunatic. Was he a liar? By no means. I mean, his his disciples um, saw him do miracles. They saw him preach. They heard him preach. They, they were willing to die for the sake of spreading the good news. And, and all of them, except maybe John, died a martyr's death, cruel deaths, for the sake of telling what they had seen in the life of Jesus. So he's not a lunatic. He's not a liar. Then the only other option is that he is Lord. And so my prayer is that No matter where you are in your walk with the Lord right now, I know that some of you have been walking with the Lord for over 50 years. I know that for some of you, it's under 10 years. And I know that some of you, you don't know where you are. You're just maybe curious about what Christianity is. Wherever you are, my prayer is that God will use this book, that God will use this study, to meet you right where you are, right wherever you are, and to instill in you a great faith, a great confidence in who Christ is, a confidence, a faith that manifests itself in your life through obedience to Christ, to seeing Christ as Lord the one who has the authority to call the shots in your life, in every area of your life. My prayer is that God would use this book to grow you. And if you don't have any faith in Christ right now, that he would instill it in you. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for sending Christ. In the silence of our hearts, Father, we confess to you the futility of our own efforts to please you. We confess to you the emptiness of our own righteousness. And we confess to you that when it comes to you, we have nothing to, get, nothing to give. You have it all. You own it all. We have no righteousness to speak of. All we have is dirty rags. But John tells us that you sent Jesus into the world in order that whoever believes in him, that all who believe in him will have eternal life and will not perish. So we confess our sins to you, Lord. We ask you to forgive us. And we ask that you would use this study to produce in us, in each one of us, individually, a sense of self-despair when it comes to our own efforts. We pray that you would reveal the emptiness of our righteousness, of our own righteousness, the futility of our own efforts, and that through this study, through this book, we pray that you would make Christ more lovely, more worthy, more beautiful, and more desirable to each of us. That we would not only be eager to repent of our sin, but that we would be eager to glorify Christ and believe in him more fully. That he would be glorified in our lives. So we pray in his name that you would bless this study and grow us in the likeness of the one of whom John testifies, your only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.